Genesis of Medicine today. This is John Murphy, and it's my pleasure to welcome to this podcast Dr. Jeremy Kimmel. Dr. Kimmel is research manager with A-Lungs Technology. Dr. Kimmel, welcome to Regenerative Medicine today. Thank you very much. So you and your colleagues are using some very innovative technology for what I've heard described as respiratory dialysis. Perhaps you could tell us a little bit about the technology and we can talk about the status of this emerging technology. Sure. Most people often think Retention of carbon dioxide is is actually more of a problem for certain patients. Lung failure, respiratory failure having to do with not enough oxygen. But it turns out that in many cases, removing that CO2 directly from the blood can really improve their clinical status. So at ALUNG, we've developed a technology platform that removes carbon dioxide directly from the blood in an extracorporeal circuit, allowing the lungs to rest and heal from whatever acute exacerbation a patient may have undergone. So the device takes blood out of the body, strips out the CO2, puts a little bit of oxygen, and returns the blood back to the body, much like dialysis does for a kidney. So we term this technology respiratory dialysis because it's basically dialysis for your lungs. So what percentage of respiratory functions is this device handle? The device is not intended to be a life support system. Another technology called ECMO or extracorporeal membrane oxygenation is different and those kinds of technologies where you're really supporting life of a patient through both CO2 and oxygenation. So our device removes anywhere between 30 and 50 percent of the CO2 normally produced in a person. So we're not supporting full lung function. These patients are typically in the ICU, but they have some lung capacity, and they can often be oxygenated using either non-invasive or invasive mechanical ventilation. But what our device allows the physician to do is remove CO2 minimally invasively while adjusting other um, oxygenation parameters and give the patient a chance to rest and heal and ultimately recover. So you mentioned mechanical respiratory support, and my understanding is that there are adverse side effects to this particular type of therapy. Exactly. So mechanical ventilation has been standard of care for decades in intensive care medicine. And it's been a lifesaver in terms of keeping patients alive and helping patients bridge a significant lung injury. However, the way that it works is it pushes air into your lungs, which is not the way that your lungs normally operate. Normally, your lungs operate by pulling air in. So a lot of new research in critical care medicine has has shown that mechanical ventilation, while in certain cases is necessary, can often actually do more damage to the lungs through what's known as barotrauma, which is increased pressure, or uh, volume trauma, too much volume pushing into the lungs. And that can have deleterious effects on both lungs and systemic organs for a multitude of patients. So by avoiding mechanical ventilation either entirely or minimizing the time that a patient is on a ventilator has shown to improve outcomes. If I understand correctly, if a patient's been on mechanical ventilation, sometimes they have trouble going back to breathing normally? Exactly. Especially for chronic respiratory insufficiency patients, such as COPD, when they are put on a ventilator, they often become dependent on it, and it's very difficult to wean patients off. And for patients who are either need to be bridged to a lung transplant or who have some kind of chronic 
pulmonary disorder, the longer they're spent on the ventilator, the worse their outcome is. So either avoiding the ventilator entirely or minimizing the time can greatly help improve the prognosis for these patients. So we've shown that specifically in COPD that by using our device earlier on as an intervention, you can stabilize them and avoid intubation, sedation, paralytics, all these things that are associated with mechanical ventilation that are shown to be poor. So your particular system is interesting from the perspective that the core technology was developed in the McGowan Institute and then Avon was founded as a corporate entity that took the concept and moved to be a commercial product. How long did that take? Alung was founded by Professor Bill Federspiel, who's a part of the McGowan Institute and the late Brack Hatler. And they formed Alung originally in, in the late 90s as a method to help get grants from the government and start exploring how to commercialize the technology. And the development of the Hemolung, which is the device that we produce, started in earnest in 2005. And we received CE Mark, which is European approval, and started full commercialization in 2013. So that's almost eight years from initial spin out from the university of the technology, moving through product development, a regulatory approval, and now full commercialization. To many, that sounds like a long time. If I'm not mistaken, it's sort of a track record in terms of moving from the, the bench to the bedside. Exactly. And, and our device... Even though it's minimally invasive, it is still more complex than very, you know, a stethoscope or some other kind of medical device that is very simple and low risk. So our device has a very rigorous regulatory pathway and product development pathway. So eight years seems like a long time, but it actually is uh, pretty standard with this kind of complex device. So is the next step to work toward approval for use in the U.S.? Yes. So we are currently approved uh, in Europe and in many countries throughout the world. However, we're not yet approved in the U.S. So we are currently working with the FDA on developing a clinical trial and finalizing a lot of our in-house testing on the bench and animal studies to move forward with a full FDA study. But because there are no predicate devices, which is known as a 510K pathway, we are moving through a PMA pathway, which is a full randomized controlled clinical trial. So that will be likely hundreds of patients and a multi-year effort before we're able to officially be sold in the U.S., so once this is available for use in the, in clinically, what's the estimate in terms of the number of people that might be served by this technology? Well, there are about half a million people in the U.S. each year who are intubated, sedated, and put on mechanical ventilation for numerous reasons. And while not all of those necessarily would be candidates for the hemolung, any patient that has acute hypercapnic respiratory failure, which means high levels of CO2 in their blood, would be able to be treated using this device. And especially target populations of COPD, which is now the third leading cause of death in the U.S. and is growing rapidly, is a really ideal target for our technology where we can use it earlier on in the disease pathophysiology, prevent people from having to be intubated, preventing them from having to stay in the ICU for long periods of time, which ultimately improves their outcome. So the growth potential for a device like this, both in the U.S. and worldwide, is very huge. 
This particular technology, how long can it be used to treat a patient? Well, currently the hemolung is approved for seven-day use in the intensive care unit. So typically a patient will be put on and the CO2 levels will rapidly decrease. And then depending on the patient's condition, they could be on for one or three or five or seven days. We have had patients that have run for longer at the discretion of the physician. And we're looking at some point to be able to have official approval for longer than seven days. But the general idea is that we want patients to be put on early and then get better, and then have them taken off the device. So this is not meant to be a long-term chronic device that is wearable and you can be moved around the hospital. The idea is in an acute setting, have a patient put on, rapidly correct their pathophysiology, and then get them off. And that's the, the safest and simplest way to use the device. So it's an interesting strategy because with mechanical ventilation, it's typically a therapy of last resort. And what you're suggesting with your particular system is it be used early and avoid some of the complications of leaving the disease state progress further. Correct. And in many disease states, the longer that a patient is on the mechanical ventilator, the worse their outcomes are. So many patients are on mechanical ventilation and then it can come off, but the longer that they're on, they become dependent and it's very difficult for them to get off. Physiologically, they worsen and their outcomes for long-term survival, morbidity rates, mortality rates, uh, lung transplantation rates, all are severely impacted. So the quicker you can get someone out of the ICU, out of these invasive technologies, the better. And the key to that is really a simple and minimally invasive device such as ours that does not require a team of experts, does not require a lot of resources, much in the same way that kidney dialysis is run in literally every ICU in the world. So we envision our device being a respiratory dialysis alternative to mechanical ventilation. Thank you for sharing that strategy. Uh, As you said a moment ago, this is not approved for use in the U.S., but I believe there's been a couple of FDA approvals on a case-by-case basis, which they call compassionate use. Correct. So even though the device is not approved, local physicians at institutions can petition the FDA to use our device when they feel that there are no other options left for a patient. And we've had now three patients in the U.S. who have fallen under this category where They were essentially out of options, and local physicians knew of our device and petitioned the FDA for an emergency compassionate use. In all three cases, this was approved, and we were able to get devices to the local institutions, train them, and have them running within a day or two. I've uh, seen at least one of these uh, cases uh, in terms of press coverage, and it's uh, quite impressive what, what the outcome was relative to the alternatives. So I congratulate you and your colleagues for the progress that you've made. Dr. Kimmel, uh, you've uh, certainly made significant progress in terms of where this uh, evolving technology is, but uh, uh, tell me what you see for the future in this regard. The area of ECOR, which is uh, extracorporeal CO2 removal, the idea has been around for a long time, since the 1970s, but the technology has never really been appropriate where the risk was low enough for physicians to take this technology and really run with it. And only in the past few years has technology uh, gotten up to speed where we now have devices such as the Hemolung, which can be used throughout the world 
So the technology can really be used around the world by physicians who are not accustomed to these kinds of extracorporeal devices. And we, and we see the future is very bright because not only it will technology advance, but I think even the entire concept of ECOR continues to gain traction through both trials outside the U.S., throughout Europe and Asia, and also within the U.S. So in the future, we really see there's a great horizon for these kinds of minimally invasive extracorporeal therapies where hospitals that are community-based, smaller, having less expertise would be able to run these kinds of therapies the same way that they would run dialysis in an intensive care unit. Oftentimes, extracorporeal therapies are limited to expert centers where they have cardiac surgeons, intensivists, perfusionists, biomedical engineers to run these complex systems. But as the technology becomes simpler and safer and more effective, we see that being used in smaller hospitals throughout the world where oftentimes they would have to transfer a patient to a larger center, and now with these technologies are able to care for these patients locally. And as I've seen the, the pictures of your device, and it's a relatively small cart, relatively portable, so the ease of moving it with the patient seems to be fairly easy, straightforward. Ease of use is a very important and, uh, and often overlooked concept when looking at product development of medical devices. It's easy in the lab to conceptualize the technology and understand how it works, but the reality of a user, whether it be a nurse or a physician or a perfusionist or a staff member, actually using it, running it, and using it correctly is very different than some concepts that are developed in the lab. And that is a true, the true nature of technology commercialization and translational technology is, is taking a technology like this, bringing it to the clinic, and making usability and human factors design a very important concept. So we do user groups with local nurses in the Pittsburgh region where we show them new prototypes, let them use it, play around with it, really to understand how nurses and physicians interact with the device and how we can make it better. Because in reality, the greatest, most advanced technology, if it can't be used reliably in the middle of the night at some hospital across the world, it's not going to really be effective and it's not going to grow. So it's really been a focus of ours to make a device that is safe and effective, but also very user-friendly. Yeah, I've seen in many cases the, the need for a good operator-machine interface, and actually for a machine-patient interface is very important. So I commend you for working those particular issues. So Dr. Kimmel, uh, thank you for joining us today and uh, sharing with us the uh, evolution of this pioneering technology. I uh, will put on our podcast website a link to Dr. Kimmel's A-Lung website, which by note is just www.alung.com. And I'd like to thank the McGowan Institute for Generative Medicine for sponsoring this podcast series. Remind our listeners you can reach us at mail at regenerativemedicinetoday.com. And thank you for listening.